Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everybody and welcome to this edition of LawPod. My name is Dr. Cheryl Lother. I'm a reader here in the School of Law. It's my pleasure to convene this LawPod episode on a recently launched report here in the School of Law. The report is entitled More Than a Number, Reparations for Those Bereaved During the Troubles. The report's authors are Professor Luke Moffat and Dr Kevin Harty, who join me this afternoon, along with the Victims Commissioner, Mr Ian Jeffers. This report makes an important contribution to the broader picture on dealing with the legacy of the Northern Ireland conflict, and it taps into one of the most under-addressed areas, compensation for those who were bereaved during the conflict. This afternoon, we'll take you through the contents of the report, some of its challenging areas, and discuss some ways forward. So my first question goes to uh, Kevin and Luke, the authors of the report. Luke, if you'd like to start us off, what new light does this report shed on the issue of compensation and dealing with the needs of the bereaved of the Northern Ireland conflict? Yes, so we have been conducting research for many years on victims and we've been hearing in a number of interviews of those who bereaved that compensation wasn't adequate. They were paid a pittance. There's very small sums, talked about £150, £250. And so we wanted to go and analyse, was there data to support this? To what extent were people compensated? Now, it took us a number of years to do this because we had to go through the Public Records Office as well as assistance from the Department of Justice. So it took us a long time to find the actual paperwork because there's tens of thousands of records. And so we were able to find about a thousand claims. And we focused on this period of the first 10 years of the Troubles because we need to make it feasible to, to, to complete this. And so we look at this, this 10 year period from the sort of the first few killings in 1966 up until the end of 1976. And in that period, over half of everybody killed in the Troubles dies in that period. So it's a good period also because the law then slightly changes in 1977 to also then include people who are widowed to get a dedicated payment of £5,000. So what this report sort of shed lights on is to what extent were people compensated during the height of the Troubles. And we found that it was a completely unequal, not fit for purpose scheme that really did a disservice to different groups of victims and even victims in the same family getting a whole different range of awards. Yeah, I, I guess we, we always had a feeling that uh, the issue of compensation wasn't going to be a good news story, despite the fact that there are all these sort of headline figures of millions of pounds of compensation being paid out throughout the conflict for bereavement. But those headline figures are kind of disingenuous whenever you break them down and you look at the anomalies within cases, and that's exactly what the report uh, ha has done. So we've got the data there that say, actually, some victims might have received tens of thousands, even perhaps up into the hundreds of thousands of pounds, in most cases, they're the outliers because most victims received under £1,500. Uh, within that, then, we were able to break down and say, well, what basis is this uh, inequality based on? And really, we found that the, the problem was because the system was based on income rather than on acknowledgement or need, certain sections uh, of victims were, were being disadvantaged. So working class people who made up the majority of, of those bereaved uh, and killed during the conflict, gender, 
because unpaid work within the family home was valued less or seen as less important, particularly when you base it on income than unpaid professional work. Uh, there was also barriers there in terms of common law spouses, cohabitees and single mothers as well to add a further gender dimension to it. The families where the victim was a child or a young person were also disadvantaged under the system that was based on income because obviously a child isn't economically active and they don't have dependents. Young people are less likely to have been married, to have had family dependent on them or to have established professional careers. So the report really sheds a light uh, on a number of areas where the compensation system bred really uh, inequality that was then perpetuated. So we know, as Kevin has just said, that there's considerable inequalities and an imbalance in the payment of compensation across the period of the conflict as a whole, but particularly in the 1970s. In many cases, particularly, for example, when a male member of the family died and a woman was left, that created significant financial harm. And so in one level, compensation can be about remedying that level of financial inequality or socioeconomic deprivation. But Ian, is there anything else that compensation can do for victims and survivors beyond meet practical needs? I think one of the key things is acknowledgement, uh, and that is uh, something that has been missing from our whole reconciliation process in some ways, is the, the compensation when you look at it as a monetary amount, is, you know, it almost is, sounds distasteful in some ways. You're trying to put a value on a life. Uh, this is a broader issue about can we acknowledge the pain, the suffering that individuals have gone through? Uh, and that shouldn't matter whether they're a sibling, whether they're a mother or father. Uh, and it's trying to in some way recognize that. And if there's a financial amount at the end of it, that's, that's okay. But I think if you look at what has happened in the past and you know, what uh, Kevin and Luke have outlined is that it was so unfair uh, the, the the system, you know, whether you got, you know, less than a hundred pounds because your daughter had been murdered through to somebody that was a breadwinner that lost their life, their family would have got more. Uh, but there's still no acknowledgement of the, the pain and the suffering. Uh, so I think this is an opportunity to use these facts to, to really, you know, drill down on the key things that would support some sort of path towards reconciliation. And one of the most striking issues for me anyway is we're sitting recording this podcast in September 2023, but this report focuses on compensation for the loss of life in the late mid to late 1960s and 1970s. We are a considerable way down the road from that period of time and victims and survivors are of course an ageing population and as we know our needs often increase with age. Why is it that we're having this conversation now? Why is it that we're calling for action? in respect to the needs of the bereaved in 2023, as opposed to 1970, 1980, and so forth? Yeah, well, I think, well, for one reason, from our perspective and getting the report done, it took a long time to get access to the data. I think there has been no transparency in terms of what it was actually paid in terms of compensation. Those initial reports that came out after the Good Friday Agreement, like Bloomfield's We Will Remember Them, puts out big stats, as, as Kevin says, that there's tens of millions paid to victims. And at one point uses the term generous. And I think that it was disingenuous. It didn't actually know to the extent at which there had been compensation. A lot of money was paid out for property. I think we're at this stage now because reparations always is contentious because it speaks to who's deserving to be recognized as a victim and who deserves to get money and services in order to remedy that harm. We're obviously a long way down the road from also the consultative group in the past, which recommended uh, £12,000. In the same way that the 
the Irish Remembrance Commission also made a payment of €15,000, I think, to just over 100 victims of the Troubles. And so we haven't really moved forward. The consultative group in the past was derailed because of this one issue. Um, it was overly politicised and you had that, you know, all victims were being um, seen as equally deserving. Um, and so there's pictures of, you know, P Patrick Rooney, one of the first children killed in the conflict, along with Molly Shankle but Butchers, Lenny Murphy, um, being put on the front page of the newspapers and saying, you know, how can a, a, somebody who is a murderer get the same as an innocent child? So this issue of innocence, deservingness is, is tied in somewhat to reparations. But I think we're in a more mature space now because we have the Victims Payment Board, which is paying compensation to injured victims. And it's dealing with uh, people who are also um, members of paramilitary groups and um, security forces who were injured themselves. Um, so we can deal with these issues. There's a way forward to deal with these issues. I think it's we need to deal with this now, um, sooner rather than later, because victims can't wait. We're seeing it now where this is becoming a transgenerational struggle, where the children of the victims and their grandchildren are now taking up the baton to struggle to redress the grievances of the past. And so I think what reparations try to do is that they can't undo the past, but they can at least alleviate the consequences and allow people some opportunities to move forward. Um, it's not to forget it, but it's also to, to say that um, we recognise what has happened and we don't want these grievances to fester into the next conflict. I think, you know, as Luke touched on, the, the victim's payment scheme in some way has highlighted the inadequacies for the bereaved. Uh, and it's allowed us to now start those difficult conversations. And the, the report provides the hard data to have those conversations, which wasn't available before. But we've got to remember the victim's payment scheme is only in operation, you know, less than three years. Uh, and that took 13 years of campaigning, uh, generally by victims. And, you know, they must have met hundreds of politicians and policymakers and opinion formers to get to that point. And, you know, it nearly was derailed again under the definition of a victim. Uh, but thankfully, common sense prevailed and we got a solution and the, the Victims Payment Board has now got about 4,000 applications to it. So th this in some ways is another piece of the jigsaw. Uh, we need to acknowledge 25 years ago, the Good Friday Agreement said we need to de deal with the issues of victims and survivors. And that was about it. There was nothing else in the agreement to say how or what. Uh, and even you know, on the stage in the Whitla Hall, uh, a number of months ago as we marked the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, we nearly heard, heard the, the same thing. We've still got to deal with victims and survivors here. So I, I think the time is right. We've now got uh, a government that has pushed through uh, the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill, to give it its full title. And that in some ways is closing doors. But I also think for those that continue to look towards recognising the rights of victims and survivors, it should open doors and it should really stiffen the resolve to make sure that we don't inadvertently leave victims and survivors behind. Because as Luke rightly said, you, people may be hoping that our victims and survivors will be gone. They'll, they'll be dead in a number of years, but they're not because their kids and their grandkids live on and rightly will want to do the right thing for their parents or their grandparents. And so we've got to resolve it. This isn't something that will go away with time. And Ian, you touched on a, a key development there, the passage and signing into law of the Legacy and Reconciliation Bill, which closes down avenues for truth and justice in Northern Ireland. And of course, has been very widely criticised in the last number of months and last number of days. 
when we look internationally, when there hasn't been a process of dealing with the past, for example, by way of truth or justice, reparations are sometimes seen as a way to buy the silence of victims or they are interpreted as a form of blood money. In the absence of a comprehensive process of truth and justice in Northern Ireland, how do we avoid the same risks being played out here that victims and survivors might feel that they're being paid to go away or they're being encouraged to close down their campaigns for truth and justice? Kevin, would you like to start us off? I think we, we make it pretty clear in the report that we're, we're not in favour of the Legacy Act and, and we don't see the, this payment as, as playing into that sort of uh, narrative of let's draw a line under this. You know, really, you can offer compensation for conflict-related bereavement without closing an avenue to truth and justice for victims. There are two very separate issues. So I don't see why we should have to say to somebody on the one hand, here's payment that provides acknowledgement. But by the way, if you accept this, you are now forfeiting your uh, route to legal justice, legal accountability to the criminal justice system, uh, or, or your right to truth, or your right to have an inquest, or your right to have a public inquiry. I mean, one of the, the, the interesting things that have come up at the, the chat at the launch earlier was around the cost. Everybody's kind of getting caught up on, well, how much is this scheme going to cost? Yes, of course the scheme costs money, but this scheme, the report projects, will cost anywhere between £90 million to £250 million. That's around the same amount of money that has been earmarked for the mechanisms under the Legacy Act. An act, an act whose institutions nobody on this island supports and very few people are going to engage with. And as Luke makes a point, and actually the, the point is made in the report, it's probably better that the money goes towards victims and survivors themselves rather than on staff and lawyers. Uh, we've seen no end of money when it comes to the, the dealing with the past process. So for example, and not to put too fine a point in it, we had a coronation a number of months ago that cost, it is projected between 50 to 100 million. Now, the person that was being coronated, their regiment was responsible for creating a number of victims and survivors. We also have if you look at public inquiries, we, we quite often get caught up in, in the cost of um, Savile. A lot of the money spent was spent by lawyers obstructing truth recovery. So if there's money there to prolong and draw out legal processes, public inquiries, there's money being spent to prolong inquests to put buyers up, surely that money is better spent giving it to victims and survivors. And I think we heard earlier that the litigation against uh, the Legacy Act could take six years. It's going to cost a lot of money. So it's probably better that that money went to victims and survivors in terms of a compensation payment than being spent having to litigate against uh, legislation that nobody on this island supports and that victims and survivors across the board haven't bought, bought into. I think at this moment in time, it's really important to separate the ICRIR, as it's going to be called, or ICRA, to give its, its abbreviation, the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery that Sir Declan Morgan is leading on is, at the minute, nobody knows what it's going to do. Nobody probably trusts it. And we're all very suspicious about uh, how it's going to operate and what powers it may or may not have. Government have forced it through. At the minute, it looks as though it's the only show in town. It would be wrong to lean in and say it's the only show in town, I think, for victims and survivors, particularly when it comes to the reparations issue, because that will just delay and delay and delay. We've got to look at these as separate things altogether. There is nothing stopping a victim engaging with the ICRIR to try and find out information of what happened to their loved one if they choose to do so. But at the same time, that should not in any way have a bearing if they are eligible for some form of reparation scheme. 
I think you know the experience in other countries has been the intent of the governments there to use reparations to silence victims, to make them just go away. And you know, places like Argentina and Sri Lanka, it did foreclose and victims had to go on the street and campaign against it. What we're trying to do here with the bereave scheme, it's not top down. This is something that's come from victims. Um, victims have said about it a lot, you know, Relis for Justice, WAVE have done reports in recent years about the need for reparations for the bereaved. And so I remember with, you know, the WAVE group, you know, and talking to people like Paul Gallagher and Jennifer McNairn and others that we wanted to get the injured scheme through the door. It was almost like a proof of concept. It was a long, hard graph of people who suffer and continue to suffer from horrendous injuries. Yet we were also hoping that it might open the door for others, you know, that maybe for those bereaved, we could get a scheme set up because what we've got at the moment is payments that are given between 500 to 1,000 pounds to the victim survivor service. That was stopped in 2017. It was restarted again. And so for victims have to claim each year and they're made to feel like beggars. It's not a legal entitlement as a right, as a human right. And so we're almost placating victims. We're mollifying them, giving them a little bit of money, the same way that happened during the Troubles, in order to make them go away. And so in our report, we pick up on research that was kindly provided by the Pat Finucane Centre, where they find that the Ministry of Defence intentionally used compensation to pay victims off, to stop cases going to court because the army was concerned that it would affect soldiers' morale, but also to stop cases going to the European Commission and the European Court of Human Rights. And it's funny if you look at cases when we teach human rights here at the School of Law, that the big cases that come about um, relating to Northern Ireland are the torture cases and the hooded men in the 1970s. And also then the shoot to kill operations that come forward in the, the mid-90s, the early 2000s. There's no case that comes forward in the 70s the European Court of Human Rights, despite most of the killings happening in the 70s. And the reason for that is because victims were paid off. The Bloody Sunday families and um, all our contentious shootings were part of the Hooded Men case before the European Commission. But the government settled all those cases and made the argument that, well, we've paid off the victims. They haven't exhausted their domestic remedies because there's remedies available there for them in the form of compensation. And so that case was then dropped. And we have other cases where victims were coming forward, um, such as the Farrell case, where her husband was killed when the British Army set up above one of the Newry Banks. And think that they were going to bomb the bank, but actually they were just these guys were just going to rob it, and they shot these three civilians in the back. Uh, and so in that case, it didn't go before the European Court because they settled thirty-seven thousand pounds with the family. And these cases went through the local courts, and that that family was denied compensation in the seventies. So it was only the threat of going to the European Commission, the European Court, that that actually amount came forward. And not all victims had that. Like we've heard today from releasing this report, victims coming and send us, you know. My family member, my mother, my father said that we accepted the money that was given to us because we had bills to pay. We thought if we didn't accept that money, we wouldn't get anything and we had mouths to feed. And it's a real unequal bargaining position of victims. There was no victims groups then. There was, um, as one uh, participant talked about today, there were sort of peace and reconciliation groups, but they weren't tailored to victims. And the problem was that victims were individuals and they were separated. They weren't able to come together and put pressure. Not really until like the mid to late 90s when, you know, the, the ceasefire started to happen and there was that sort of free civic space for people to come forward because it was dangerous speaking out. You know, you're putting your head above the parapet, you know, um, sort of risk. And so I think time is running out. We need to deal with this issue. Other countries can deal with it um, in far more complex manners. 
are not as wealthy as, as the UK is. Colombia has over 9 million victims. Ukraine is talking about, you know, 14 million victims. So we can find solutions. It's just we need political will to deliver this before it's too late. And of course, one of the perpetual challenges of dealing with issues around victims and survivors of the Northern Ireland conflict is the question of precisely who is a victim of the conflict. And for listeners who are perhaps less familiar or listening from outside of Northern Ireland, the question of who is a victim of the Northern Ireland conflict effectively goes back to the issue of what the conflict itself was actually about. And we have a legal definition of a victim or survivor contained in the Victims and Survivors Order of 2006. And that defines a victim or survivor of the conflict on the basis of objective need in the present day. It doesn't determine or distinguish how someone came to have that experience of need. It just looks at their circumstances in the present day. That, of course, is quite controversial. And in 2009, as many of our listeners will know, the consultative group in the past made a report of 31 recommendations on how best to deal with the legacy of the Northern Ireland conflict. One of those recommendations was for a recognition payment of £12,000 that would be payable on the basis of the victims and survivors order. So payable to all victims and survivors of the conflict, regardless of how they became a victim or survivor. That recommendation caused political and social uproar amongst victims groups and politicians across the political spectrum. And in effect, it not only led to the end of the idea of the recognition payment, but it ended the entire report of the consultative group in the past. How do we ensure that a similar situation doesn't arise in the future when we talk about compensating those who were bereaved as a result of the conflict? I think perhaps with reflection, there was a campaign against uh, the the initial payment. £12,000 can reflect on what would have happened if we'd let this go for the people that meet the definition of victims and survivors. Inevitably, not everybody will agree with that. As commissioner, I must work within the definition. Uh, Indeed, it was one of my interview questions is who's a victim? And that came from the then first minister. Uh, my response was straightforward. I said, you tell me. Uh, and that, that is what we're faced with. And we, you know, we know we've got groups that work with victims and survivors that are very clear that in their views, they work with innocent victims. We've got groups who will quite happily work within the broader definition of victim and survivor. It, if we allow ourselves to get held up on a definition, then everybody suffers. And it is, I think it is, we are maybe in a more mature time. Uh, we saw last minute changes around the victim's payment scheme to introduce a clause about, I think, not injured by their own hand, uh, which placated some and allowed them to say, well, that means, you know, somebody that, you know, was actually carrying the bomb that exploded, that blew their arm off. They're not going to, to be eligible for it. Perhaps government will intervene this time and try and do something similar. So I don't think it's for us to define who gets it. It's for us to make sure that there is an equitable scheme there for victims and survivors. And if others want to argue who a victim and survivor is, I would caution do so with the extent that the last time we did this, we added years to the process. Yeah, I I agree that we can't let this politic get in the way. There's solutions that are available to move forward in this issue. I think one thing we need to always remember is that the victim survivor's order is limited and focused on the role of the commission, that it needs to be as wide as possible so that the commission is able to advocate and be that voice um, that can speak to you know, the relevant authorities. 
deco victim sentiments. I think, you know, most programs around the world don't have such a wide definition of a victim. When it comes to reparations, you need to be more focused because you're trying to prioritize resources to the people who need it most. And so that doesn't mean that we exclude certain victims, but we also try to find a balance. And that's what we try to do with the injured scheme. We're trying to find a balance between who needed it most based on the issue of disability, but also in terms of morally, if we allowed people who had blown themselves up in an incident which killed other people, should they also be eligible? So it's about trying to find that balance. And I think it can be done and it has been done in the past. We were able to solve these issues. But when it comes to doing reparations more broadly, we have to think about, you know, we're not just paying money to people here. It's not trying to just throw money away. We're trying to do something bigger here. We're trying to acknowledge that um, no matter what your character or background is, nobody deserves to be killed or executed um, or blown up. Um, there was no justification to it. There needs to be a recognition, um, and that maybe comes through other bodies beyond the, the reparations process, but reparations are about acknowledging the victim's harm. And I think that's where the starting point is, with what is the purpose of such a scheme? And it's to give that sort of acknowledgement as a way of sort of vindicating that as a human being uh, with dignity and rights that you're entitled to exist in this place. And we need that not just for the individual victims, but as society. We need to move away from a society that has a culture of violence where it's seen as acceptable or justifiable that people were killed in the name of politics. And we also need to think about the power dynamics. If you think about the last stages of how the injured campaign went about, the issue of a complex victim, of you know, people who had victimized themselves, was used as a way to stymie the conversation. It was always, it was always that, that sort of Boris Johnson, dead cat on the table, you know, would say, well, what about, you know, one of the Shankle butchers getting it? Or what about, you know, um, this person getting it? You know, this water boundary, it stymies the conversation and it just, it just derails it. And I think also the way in which it was used that all victims need to get everything all the time was also a way of stymie. We saw that the right-wing parties in Colombia used this. We also seen certain ministers in the Northern Ireland executive using government paid money to take litigation against people like Jennifer McNairn um, and Brian Turley, who brought the case to get the victims' pension scheme set up and funded, impoverished, disabled victims going against government paid lawyers. Like we haven't learned from the unequal bargaining position of victims that they had during the troubles that's continued to be per perpetuated today. And, you know, people say we're all victim centered, all political parties are all victim centered, we're all over victims issues. But when it really comes down to it, they're more concerned about the next election and scoring a few cheap points. So I think we need to be really careful and we really need to call out politicians and say, well, you know, solve this. There's so many problems that need solved get back to work and get this done. Yeah, I think the, the issue of, of eligibility is always going to rise uh, under any scheme, whether that's for conflict-related bereavement, whether we're talking about memorialisation, whether we're talking about access to truth and justice. I mean, I, I agree with, with both Ian and Luke that it's largely an issue of politics and that if you get caught up in the issue of, well, who is and isn't eligible, nothing gets done, okay? Everybody is punished. And let's not forget, we're talking about a minority of cases here, okay? So so-called complex victims will make a, a minority of cases, but people are focusing on that minority of cases. So if, if we kind of go down the, the route of politicking it, well, well, there's only two things that will happen. One is, as Ian points out, nothing gets done and we're kicking the can further down the road and the whole scheme collapses on, on what is a political issue. Or the second is, is that we simply end up replicating a lot of the anomalies that we have criticised in the report in the original system. So, for example, you could have a family and there are many, many instances of this. And I think it's important again to reiterate to the listeners that these are human beings we're talking about. These are human stories. Uh, you know, 
The people that were killed were human. The people that were left behind were human. But you will have within particular families where one member was not a member of an armed group. The family will get compensated for that. But perhaps their sibling was a member of an armed group and they won't get compensated for it. And again, we're replicating that issue of giving somebody £50 and giving somebody else £10,000. So we're creating the exact same disparity only in a different guise. So I think really that we should be led by, by the human rights stance in it and the international law stance rather than uh, the, the political stance. And really, I think there's more commonality among victims in terms of having been ripped off and mistreated and abused on the issue of age, gender or class rather than getting tied up in a political and ideological debate around, well, who actually victimised whom? I think we should focus on remedying past inadequacies first and foremost and, and where we can avoiding that that which is really a political, moral and ideological debate around, well, should somebody that was in X group also be entitled to uh, compensation? Okay, and so the conversation so far this afternoon has focused on compensation as a response to meeting the needs of the bereaved. But of course, compensation, financial compensation, is only one slice of the broader picture of dealing with the past. And indeed, it's only part of the picture of what many victims and survivors need. Would you each like to comment on, based on your own research, your academic research, your day job in, in the Commission for Victims and Survivors, Luke and Kevin, on the archival work that you have done and the work that you've done internationally? What other needs that victims and survivors have and need to have a spotlight shone on them? I think, you know, reparations is, is compensation is an important part. It gives people something of value that they can have agency to spend as they want. But it's also supposed to be a complement with rehabilitation to help them socially, medically, legally function, as well as return of rights, memorialization, and guarantees of non-repetition. So with one of these, I think it probably stands out the most for me is a memorial. We don't have a memorial to everybody who was killed during the Troubles. And in front of our report was an artistic mural down in the centre of Belfast, which has numbers on it. And each of those numbers is an incident that happened and the amount of people were killed in that incident. And it's, it's, it's overgrown with ivy and it's people walk past it and drive past it and never notice it. But we don't have a proper memorial. The only memorial I know of, of the Troubles is in Doha Famine Village up in Donegal. And, and there, all the names of everybody who was killed is there. Outside Belfast City Hall, we've got a memorial to the, the Korean War and the Titanic. And I think it's a disservice for the next generation that we're not confronted by the human scale of loss. As a society... Over three and a half thousand people were dead. And that would amount, if those people had lived and had children and grandchildren, that's tens of thousands of people we have lost in Northern Ireland. We've lost a whole range of people of different abilities, different political stances, who could have really contributed to our society. And if we fail to learn the past, as Santiana would say, we, we're condemned to repeat it. And I'm really concerned in, in this tiny island, where for hundreds of years we've fought over this tiny pieces of turf, that we're condemning the next generation to repeat the failed mistakes that we were unable to redress. A memorial is a way of sort of keeping that in people's minds, but also in like in education, like in school, we were never taught about the troubles. It was difficult to talk about because it was still ongoing, but there needs to be education in schools. And that's seen as a key requirement in a lot of other countries. So people know what happened and there's that, not an independent account, but an objective perspective on what both sides were responsible for and who was responsible for what and how it was messy you know, within families, within communities. And that needs to ensure that people know for themselves and can decide for themselves beyond the political ideology about what actually happens. And rather than just simply identifying as being from one community, 
can have that broader understanding of their place in this society and on this island. I guess one of the things that, that I think, and it's intrinsically linked actually to, to compensation in a way, is acknowledgement. So victims and survivors need acknowledgement. And we know that one of the premises for compensation, particularly for conflict-related bereavement, is that as well as meeting material needs, it is also meant to provide uh, acknowledgement in and of itself, so some sort of symbolic acknowledgement. I think that's very important to victims and survivors. And I think it actually goes under the, the radar quite a bit, but very few people know that Throughout the course of the conflict, non-state armed groups have issued hundreds of apologies to, to victims. Now, very often, they don't gain traction in the media, and also victims are quite sceptical, uh, particularly during a conflict, okay, whenever somebody says, sorry, well, why are you saying sorry? Are you saying sorry because you actually are sorry? Are you saying sorry because you don't want people to tell you to move arm stumps out of a house? Are you saying sorry because you don't want funds from, you know, bars in Boston or Chicago or, or wherever growing up or drying up? Are you saying sorry? because uh, you, you don't want some of the, the international heat and censor that, that's coming on you. But I think it, as we move further away, temporarily uh, away from the, the conflict, that certainly acknowledgement is something uh, that, that we should have corporate acts of, of responsibility. And I know that the non-state armed groups have, for the most part, uh, issued collective statements. So you had the IRA statement of 2002, you had the Loyalist Combined Military Command in the ceasefire statement, the INLA also apologised in their ceasefire statements. Uh, the state hasn't quite caught up with the non-state armed groups in, in terms of, of those overall corporate apologies, though it has made notable apologies in the case of Bloody Sunday, which I think is kind of the gold star standard in terms of uh, apologies from states. The, the letter from Boris Johnson for Bally Murphy, not so much. That's probably a good example of how not to do it. So I think some sort of acknowledgement, preferably choreographed acknowledgement, where all actors who are involved in the conflict can acknowledge that, that harm was done. Uh, I mean, I've had this discussion with, with colleagues quite a bit of the time. I don't think acknowledgement or an apology has to, you know, you can't qualify it by reiterating your ideological position. However, I also think at the same time, and this is where I disagree with some of my colleagues, I don't think an apology or acknowledgement is the place where you have to disavow uh, firmly held uh, ideological positions either. I think it's really about acknowledgement. So I acknowledge that you are harmed. We're not getting into the rights or the wrongs of whether you should or should not have been harmed, but you are harmed. And I acknowledge that. And I think uh, as Luke said, I think it's the Columbia case where you get a letter of acknowledgement along with your compensation uh, payment. So I think certainly for, for me, uh, acknowledgement would be uh, a good uh, thing to, to build into that scheme as well. I think I'd build on that. I mean, it, one of the things I've noticed in the year plus that I've been in office is that when victims and survivors come in over the door, they talk about knowledge and acknowledgement. Uh, they want to know what happened and they want people to recognize that. Uh, and actually, I don't think I've ever heard anybody ask for money. They've asked for access to services. They've asked to help to, to access services, particularly trauma-related services and so forth, but never to say, I need compensation. And I think we should take that really the way it is meant, is that victims and survivors want the knowledge. They do need acknowledgement. Uh, I think if we try and link them all together, we, as we said uh, earlier today, somebody asked the question, will the payment come with acknowledgement? I think if we're waiting for that, we'll be waiting a long time and it's another excuse to delay things. We shouldn't give up on it. Uh, I totally agree with Kevin. There needs to be acknowledgement and, and ideally a coordinated approach to it, which at one point in history seemed likely through Stormont House. That's probably off the table now. Whether you know the ICRIR will ever get to that point is debatable. But you go back to the point, if we can deliver for victims and survivors knowledge and acknowledgement and then follow it up with financial reparation, then I think we'll be in a much better place.
Thank you, everybody. This has been a hugely important conversation this afternoon, addressing the direct needs of victims and survivors of the conflict here and coming at a particularly timely moment. I encourage anyone who's listening to pick up a copy of the report. Uh, you can find it on the Reparations Project website via the School of Law. The report's called More Than a Number, Reparations for Those Bereaved During the Troubles. I encourage you to read it and to join Luke Moffat, Dr. Kevin Harty and Mr. Ian Jeffers in pushing this conversation forward. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.